this week you live in a money pit. Money pit. If your basement needs a pump, or your place looks like a dump, you live in a money pit. Money pit. Pick up the telephone, fix up your home sweet home. I call it eight 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 money pit. The money pit is presented by the Angie app. Now here are Tom and Leslie. Coast to coast and floorboards to shingles. Welcome to the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. This is episode 2199. Another almost milestone, Leslie. Almost ready to hit 2200 episodes of this show. Wowie zowie. So I hope that we can help you as we've helped so many others in the past with the planning for your home improvement project. If you've got a job you want to get done, you don't know where to start, we can help start with us. If you've run into a problem, a tricky situation, if you need to involve a contractor, but you don't know if you're getting a good price or not, or even what to ask, all great questions to reach out to us with. You can do that by calling us at 1-888-MONEYPIT, or better yet, post your questions at moneypit.com slash ask. Coming up on today's show, if you are hoping for a lush green lawn for the entire season, now is the perfect time to set up your sprinkler system for success. We'll explain how to dial it in for water efficiency and effectiveness. And also ahead, building a fence is a great way to improve your home's curb appeal, your home value, and keep out the wildlife. Whether it's a project you want to do yourself or one that you'd plan to hire out, we're going to share five tips to help make sure your fence project is a success. And mulch is an important element to any spring garden or landscape plan, but how much mulch is too much mulch? We're going to share tips, including an important caution about one popular type of mulch you should avoid at all costs because it can grow fungus that sticks to your house and your car and be almost impossible to get rid of. That definitely is a yucky situation. But whatever you guys are working on, whatever it is, we want to hear from you. Let us know what you're working on this weekend, what you're hoping to tackle this spring and summer season, everything that you've got going on, your plans, your dreams for your home. Let us know so we can give you a hand. That's right, because this show is all about the care and feeding of your home. We can help you make smart decisions and create your best home ever. So let's start doing that right now. Leslie, who's first? Heidi in North Carolina is on the line with an electrical problem. How can we help you today? Well, I have a kind of a two-part question. I have an older home. It's about 68 years old. Um, We paid an electrician to come in when we converted over to a heat pump from an oil furnace um, to up our service. And um, we have an old fuse box that are the screw-in type fuses. And when he put the system in the new um, um, electrical box, he was supposed to convert everything over into the new electrical box. And he left the little electrical box, the little fuse box in my kitchen. And unfortunately, he put the new electrical box on the outside of my house. That would be okay, except I'm a single woman and I don't, you know, safety reasons, I don't think it's really smart, considering I have a full-size basement that could easily be put in. So do I need to, I mean, I would never call this guy again um, for lots of reasons, but do I need to pay somebody else to come in and convert that last part of my home into this other fuse box or... Um, you know, these little fuses are hard to find, and, you know, when they blow... So it's definitely an active panel, right, the fuse panel? Oh, it's active, yes, sir. Okay. So that's called a sub-panel, and that's going to be a, a sub-panel from the main panel. You said the main panel is now in the basement, or the main panel is outside? 
It's outside. We have a full basement, and why he put it outside, I have no clue, but he put the main panel. Yeah, that makes no sense, because the only time you usually see full panels outside is maybe a condominium situation, and then they're in utility closets. So I can't imagine why that was done that way. It, it doesn't make sense. It sounds to me like you do need a better electrician to come in and take care of this. If it makes you feel any better, the fact that you have a fuse box does not mean that it's unsafe. Fuses are actually quite safe if it's the right size fuse matched against the wire that's hooked up to that circuit. And so to know if that's the case, somebody has to open the panel and say, okay, this is number 14 wire, so it's a 15 amp fuse, and this is number 12 wire, so it's a 20 amp fuse, and so on, and physically write that like right above the fuse on the panel so you know what size to put in there. Because it's too easy with a fuse box to put in a 20 amp fuse on a wire that's only rated for 15 amps, then of course that's potentially unsafe. So it does sound like you need another electrician. It's obviously not a do-it-yourself project. And unless there's some compelling code reason in your part of the country to put that outside, I don't understand why they would have done that. And, you know, you could you could consider rerunning it back to the inside. And, and unfortunately, that's kind of where we're at. It's not an easy fix. It's one that's going to require uh, the investment of a good electrician. All right. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome, Heidi. Thank you for calling us at 888 Pit. Mike in Minnesota is dealing with a tumble lint, if you'd like to call it that. Lint blowing at a dryer vent. Welcome, Mike. So I've got a dryer vent that uh, directly vents through the exterior wall that it sits against. So there's not much ductwork involved. My problem is that the vent sits uh, 12 inches up from our deck surface, right in the middle, and it just makes an awful mess. So I'd really like to put in some type of maybe secondary capture system, or maybe even reroute it on the, the exterior of the house. Um, I should also let you know that I have three teenage daughters and a wife, so doing less laundry doesn't, uh, <laughs> isn't really a popular solution at, at my house. One solution could be just a clothesline, you know, do you think of that? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll offer that one up to my wife, too, and see how that goes. There you go. See how far, see how far that gets us. Well, look, the good news is that having a dryer vent that's so close to an exterior wall like that means your clothes dry as efficiently as possible. Because if you try to route this anywhere else but directly out, it's going to take a lot longer for those clothes to dry. Plus, you have the added hassle of, of needing to maintain the dryer exhaust duct because it will uh, you know, continually build up with lint and have to be, have to be clean. So it's clearly a trade-off. I don't think that anything that traps lint is going to be a good thing. It could cause a fire, actually. I mean, the fact that it's venting out uh, is what it's supposed to do. Does the dryer lint vent work well inside the machine? Because it would seem to me that if the lint trap is working well inside the machine, you shouldn't be getting as much lint in the dryer exhaust duct. Well, that's what I expected, too, and it's a, it's a, it's a new dryer, um, and certainly it's capturing a lot, too. Well, if you did rerun it, where would you go? Well, I, I thought about putting it just below the deck, which is about 12 inches down, but I have a basement window there, and it would just make a mess of the window. The only other option I'd have is to run it along uh, basically the floor of the deck. Maybe it would probably take about uh, eight feet or so before I got away from the deck. But that would be a sharp right turn. Well, here's what I would think about. I would think about how many turns you need to make starting at the machine to get that to happen. So if you take if you come off the machine and you take one elbow down and then you go into the floor, you take another elbow out, you're essentially making a uh, a U-turn and then that warm moist air has to travel all that distance to get out. So is it possible? Yeah, it's not going to be as efficient. So that's your trade-off. 
And by the way, keep in mind that with most dryers, you can you can actually move the dryer vent. For example, I have a dryer that I'm reconfiguring right now that has a, a dryer exhaust duct out the back. But I noticed that the side of the dryers had punch-outs holes for it. And so I just looked up online, and the installation instructors, instructions showed me how to rerun the duct coming out the side of the machine so that I could uh, vent it uh, quicker to an exterior wall than having to go down through a floor. Oh, okay. That might be an option, too. So consider that you may, you may be able to come out of the dryer in a different direction. Okay. Did you know that Americans take 20,000 breaths a day and spend an average of 90% of their time indoors? That's right. And according to the EPA, the level of indoor air pollutants can be two to five times higher than outdoor air and occasionally more than 100 times higher. Plus, every spring we get sucked with allergens, too. Well, Air Doctor is an air purifier that filters out dangerous contaminants like pollen, pet dander, dust mites and mold. Their Ultra HEPA filter has been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested allergens, including bacteria and viruses. That's impressive. Now, Air Doctor also comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus the shipping. And they're offering a special discount to Money Pit listeners. Just head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code MONEYPIT, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you'll also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock this special offer in right now by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-Pro.com and use promo code MONEYPIT. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code MONEYPIT. Everyone should know that drinking water is important to staying hydrated and healthy. Having safe, clean water is the last thing you want to worry about, but unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants right in its tap water. That's why we are thrilled to be working with AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. It removes 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and is specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAs in your water supply. And they have water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. They even have a Wi-Fi-connected purifier and mineral boost options. And its proprietary purification technology is independently tested by IATMO to NSF and ANSI standards to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAs known as forever chemicals, nitrate, and many more. I can truly taste the difference when I compare it with my old water filter. AquaTrue saves you money also. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That's less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you'll save the environment from tons of plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and even makes a great gift. And today, Money Pit listeners can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to aquatrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code MONEYPIT at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier when you go to aquatrue.com and use promo code M-O-N-E-Y-P-I-T. Money Pit. Donna in Washington, you've got the Money Pit. What can we do for you today? I live in an old... Not as two-story cedar shingle house. And anyway, years ago, I used to be able to put Olympic stain on it, and I kept it uh, stained, but then they changed the law where I couldn't use stain anymore. 
So it was painted in the late, well, probably 99. Well, now the paint started peeling, so I had one of my sons came and pressure washed it. This is about two years ago now. But he couldn't get all the paint off, and it's flaky, and it's because of the shingles and these little grooves. You can't get it all out. And I live in a two-tone house, a brown stain where the paint's peeling and the green where the paint's not peeling, and it looks terrible. And I've called, I've phoned two different contractors and gave them the address, and they must have just come by and looked at it, and they never even called back, let alone stopped by. Chased them off, huh? Yes, plus they have to have a special license because the house is so old, it has to be in this state anyway. Um, It it costs them thousands and thousands of dollars because in case there's lead outside in the paint, well, it was stained, not painted. So, you know... Aside from all the drama associating with this, it's really quite a basic problem. When you have all of these layers of paint that are on the material over all of these years, at some point you're going to lose adhesion to the original substrate, which is the cedar. The only solution in that case is to remove the paint to get down to the originally natural wood. So pressure washing it is fine for the loose stuff, but beyond that, you've got to scrape and sand because you've got to get some of that natural wood to kind of show itself through the remaining stained areas that are painted, because once it's ready, truly ready, where you've got all the loose stuff off and your surface has been abraded properly, then you can apply an oil-based primer. And the purpose of the primer is kind of a layer. It has different qualities than paint. Primer is the glue that makes the paint stick. And so if you use an oil-based primer on there, you'll get very good adhesion to the cedar. Once that thoroughly dries, then you could paint on top of that. And the top coat of paint uh, does not have to be oil-based, but the primer does. That's what's going to give the adhesion. But you can't just keep putting good paint over bad paint. Otherwise, the problem of peeling will just continue to repeat itself. Does that make sense, Donna? Okay. Thank you. Dennis in Wyoming is on the line and has a question about a backer board. What can we do for you? Yes, uh, I just wondered your opinion on the green board being used behind a thermoplastic shower wall. I'm installing a shower in an alcove. Okay. And they sent me the base, and then I've got these three walls that I have to glue. Usually it's that kind of a, of a liner. Usually it goes on top of tile. Can you put it over green board? Well, the problem with the green board is it's not very water-resistant. I mean, it's more water-resistant than than regular drywall, but it's not terribly water-resistant. It's designed to be a tile backer. So I would say if you're going to do it, it's probably okay, but just don't kid yourself into thinking this is something that's going to last for more than a few years or, or maybe 10 years max. But I would be very careful to uh, silicone seal all of the seams so you don't have water that goes through the seams of that shower enclosure and saturate through the green board because it will sort of soften up and rot out. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome, Dennis. Thanks so much for calling us at 888-MONEYPIT. Well, if you're hoping for a lush green lawn for the entire season, now actually is the perfect time to set up your sprinkler system. But before you do that, it's important that the system is tested and adjusted so that you avoid wasting water. Now, first of all, each zone has got to be checked for leaks. Even if it worked well last year, sprinklers can definitely very easily be damaged during the freezing winter weather. Even a pin-sized leak of about one thirty-second of an inch in diameter, about the thickness of a dime, that alone can weigh 6,300 gallons of water per month. That's huge. 
Absolutely. Now, besides checking for leaks, there are a few more ways you can save on water. First, obviously, water only when your lawn needs it. Now, a smart sprinkler controller can do this for you. The way it works is it tracks the weather, and it runs the sprinklers only when they're truly needed. So that's a really nice way to save money through the entire season. Now, you also want to make sure that you water during the coolest part of the day. The morning is definitely best, and doing so in the morning is going to help prevent fungus from growing and will also minimize evaporation, and that occurs when you water in the hot sun. You know, water the lawn, sun is burning on it, it's going to just go away before it gets a chance to get to the roots. Now, double-check that your sprinkler heads aren't spraying onto your sidewalk or driveway, too. It's very easy for a sprinkler head to get knocked loose or jolted by a lawnmower or maybe by the kids or pets playing in the yard. If you water your sidewalk, the only thing that's going to grow is your water bill. Now, next, you want to put a fresh layer of mulch around your trees and your plants, and that's going to help keep that soil moist and prevent evaporation. Definitely important. And by the way, when you cut your lawn, you want to set the blades about one notch higher than usual because that helps keep the grass blades longer and it provides shade to the roots and prevents really greater evaporation. So don't be in such a you know hurry to cut all the grass right down to the nubs because that's just going to end up with a really weedy, dried out looking lawn. Cut it high, cut it often, and that's the best way to have a lush green lawn for the season. Now we're going to Arkansas, where Deborah's on the line, thinking there might be some mold in her money pit. Tell us what you're seeing. The last rain that we had, uh, water got in one of my bedrooms, and once the water got in, I noticed that there was black spots on it, which was mold that was on there, and I was just inquiring about should I get someone to come out and clean that, or if I would be able to... Uh, clean that myself. Have you fixed the leak yet, Deborah? No, I have not fixed that. Okay, so the first thing you need to do is fix the leak, because if you don't fix the leak, it's just going to come back over and over and over again. So do that first off. Secondly, with respect to the mold, I would spray a bleach and water solution on that, about one-third bleach, two-thirds water. Protect the surrounding area so you don't uh, stain uh, the carpet or the furniture or anything like that. Let it sit for a good 15 or 20 minutes, and then you can uh, clean it up uh, after that, rinse it off and, and clean off the wall after that. And I'd spray a product called Concrobium Mold Control over that, which will leave sort of like a residue behind that will stop any future mold from growing. But there's no sense doing all that if you still have a leak because that leak's going to cause the mold to keep growing. So fix the leak first, then get rid of the mold after that. Okay, Deb? Okay. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Now we've got Doug in Virginia on the line with a siding question. How can we help you? Yes, I got uh, my son's house has some vinyl siding on it. And uh, the folks that owned it before he did uh, were patching something with some of the spray foam insulation, uh, the crack filler stuff, and it oozed out all over the siding. So I know I can go back and cut it loose, cut what's extra stuff. But when I get down close to the vinyl, what can I clean the residue off with to make it clean without damaging the vinyl? It's very difficult because you get those those um, foams are usually polyurethane and they have real adhesive qualities to it, really real adhesive. So um, what you can do is try to gently scrape it off with uh, a putty knife, but make sure you want use an older one is better because it won't be quite so sharp. And very carefully do that, and then I've all, I've stripped off uh, some some uh, foam errant foam with WD-40 as the solvent. So you might want to try that with a Scotch 
pad because scotch pad is not abrasive. But you could spray the siding with the WD-40 and then work the scotch pad back and forth. You may find that you uh, pull off some of that some of that residue. It really depends on you know what kind of foam it is. But you're right. Once it's dried, cut as much of it off and then try to abrade the rest of it off. But do so with a mind not to damage the siding. Okay. Well, I'll give it a try. WD-40. Yep. Try it. It's one of the thousand uses for that stuff. <laughs> you know, they say the only the only two things in your toolkit, WD-40 <laughs> and duct tape, they're pretty close. Then I can go over the whole back of the house with WD-40 to, to revitalize well, I would, the vinyl. Well, if it's, if it's the whole back of the house, I mean, you're talking about spot cleaning, okay, but if it's the whole back of the house, then I, I think you've got a bigger problem. I think you're looking at new siding. But would I get an oily spot when I use the WD-40 that would look different than the you rest will. of it? You will, but soap and water will take it away. I guess that'll fade, yeah. That's why it's good for only, like, a little spot. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, now we've got Diane in Massachusetts on the line with a noise question. What's going on at your money pit? I did the house 12 years ago, and I had blown-in insulation put in three years. And, and the house is noisy. I can hear a humming. It's it's annoying. It's a buzzing. I, I don't know why, after doing all of this um, surrounding the house and trying to keep it warm, I would hear a humming. A resonance in the house. Well, I'll tell you what. There's got to be a reason for this, and it's going to take some real detective work to figure it out. I'll give you an example from uh, my own home. You know, we uh, recently, I'd mentioned earlier on the show, put in spray foam insulation and sealed up the attic. It's never been uh, warmer in the house as a result of it. But in one part of the house, it still was technically a conditioned attic. So by code, we were required to leave um, some vents in that attic. Now, it, it ended up that it was so tight in that attic space, even with the vent, that whenever the wind blew, we'd get this really weird, almost like haunting sound. You know, uh, when you were a kid and you took, took an old bottle and you blew it across the top of it and made a big, d- deep sound with it, yeah. like a big jug? Well, that's what it sounds like when the air blows across this vent, and it makes a really weird sort of vibrating sound in that part of the house. Until I figured it out, I was really scratching my head. So there's always a reason for this. Uh, in our case, it was a vent. In your case... It could be plumbing. Very often we get noises in homes that are sourced from plumbing. Sometimes when you run uh, hot or cold water, pipes will expand or contract and cause sort of like a cricking sound that will vibrate through the entire length of the pipe and amplify itself as a result. It could be electrical. If there's outlets or panel boxes in those parts of the house, they definitely should be inspected to make sure that nothing is disintegrating inside uh, that electrical um, area. There's nothing about adding blown-in insulation that will cause a noise. So the source must be somewhere else that you're going to have to dig into a bit more, Diane, um, before uh, you'll know what to do about it. But I would trust your instincts. If you're hearing it, it definitely exists. Sometimes people think they're going nuts, but I got to tell you, there's a reason for that, but it's definitely going to take some detective work to get to the bottom of it. Okay, you coming over? (laughs) All right, well, you put on the coffee, and next time I'm up in Massachusetts, we'll stop by. (laughs) Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. Well, building a fence is a great way to improve your home's value, your curb appeal. It keeps the wildlife out. So whether it's a project that you want to do yourself or one that you're planning to hire out for, we're going to share five tips to help make sure that your fence project is a success. Now, first up, plan your fence carefully. There's nothing worse than an ongoing neighborhood feud that's caused by a fence that's built on the wrong side of a property line. So know exactly where your lines are drawn. Give your neighbors a heads up to avoid any hard feelings. 
Now, next, you need to make sure that you're making your fence a legal project because while not all fencing is going to require a permit, it's definitely worth checking with your local officials just to be sure. Some towns do have strict guidelines for fence height, material selection, picket spacing, post hole footings, and minimum setback distance from the sidewalk or street. So better find out first before you're doing a project two or three times until you get it right. Now, depending on your tolerance for maintenance, you want to think about your materials because fencing is available in a big wide range of materials. I mean, you can go with natural and pressure-treated woods, composites, vinyl, and metal. In addition to the look you like, consider the upkeep that's required by that fence selection because natural wood obviously comes with the biggest ongoing demands, but maybe vinyl, not so much, although vinyl is a heck of a lot more expensive. So it really is a balancing act to choose the one that's best for you. All right. Now, once you've got all your things selected, you want to make sure that you're setting those fence posts properly. So to make sure that that fence is going to last, it's super important to set those posts right. Now, setting posts in concrete is a great way to go, but you don't have to order pre-mixed concrete or even mix it yourself. QuickCrete actually has a fast-setting product. You're going to find it in the red bag, and all you do is pour the dry mix around the post, and then you water the hole, like literally just pour water into the hole with the mix, and it's going to set hard in about an hour, and those posts will be totally locked in place. And finally, remember, the good side of the fence has to face out. Fencing like board on board is designed to look good on both sides, but if you get like stockade fence, that has only one finished side, and that is the side you need to face your neighbor. You don't get to look at the pretty side. You have to have the neighborhood look at the pretty side. So remember, if you don't do that, you could get yourself in trouble with your local building or zoning departments, and they could make you take the whole darn thing out. So good side has to face out. Good fences make good neighbors, but only if they're installed right. And now you know how to do just that. All right. We've got Ted on the line who's noticing a musty smell in the basement. What's going on? I have a finished basement that's carpeted and I live in a townhome and I just, it has a musty smell and I can't get rid of it no matter what I do. Um, Is the basement uh, heated and cooled? It is. Yes. I actually have the heat turned on down there now. And I usually turn the air on in the, uh, summertime and on nice days i open the windows and let the windows stay open all day long do you have a dehumidifier i do not well generally when you get a musty smell it's because of moisture and sometimes the moisture settles into carpet and furnishings and can exacerbate it but if you reduce the moisture and the humidity that will sometimes improve it so in a basement you could do that with something called a whole house dehumidifier which is actually something that could be added onto the hvac system and it will take out uh, these whole house dehumidifiers, dehumidifiers can take out like uh, like 100, points, 100 pints of water a day. They work really, really efficiently. And it's not the kind of thing where you have to dump it or anything like that. It just goes to a, a, a pump and gets pumped right outside. The other thing that you can do is to improve the drainage conditions outside your house because, believe it or not, if you extend gutters away from the house, if you slope soil away from the house, there's a lot less water that collects at the foundation perimeter and ends up getting into your house and raising that humidity level. If you manage the moisture at the foundation perimeter and add a dehumidifier, you'll find that it goes a long way towards reducing that amount of humidity. And then finally, I would check the HVAC system to make sure you have a good quality return vent in the basement because... You don't just want supplies, you want returns too, so it pulls that moist air back into the system. And as it goes through the system and heats up or goes across the air conditioning coil and condenses, you'll be pulling more moisture out that way as well. Okay? Okay, great. I'll give it a shot. All right, Ted, thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. 
Well, mulch can give your lawn a nice, clean, finished look. But did you know that mulch is very beneficial to your plants and soil as well? So here's how it works. Mulch actually really does a lot of things for the landscaping beds. It reduces surface evaporation of moisture from the soil. It protects shallow-rooted plants. It discourages weed growth. And it also improves water penetration. Now, you can mulch any time of the year. The areas to be mulched should be cleared of all weeds and leaves and grass. And use at least three inches of mulch for an effective covering. If you live in a warmer climate, maybe even go so much as to add six inches. Now, when it comes to materials, you're going to find there are many choices of mulch, and it really comes down to appearance more than cost. You can find both natural and man-made materials, you know, anything from wood to stone to rubber, so lots of options out there. And here's an important tip. With natural mulch, please stay away from the shredded type. And here's why. Because the shredded mulch could contain a type of fungus called artillery fungus. And it's called that because when it grows, it looks kind of like buckshot hit your house or your car with little black specks everywhere. And the problem is it can be really, really hard to remove. Sometimes it's almost impossible, especially if you have like a vinyl-sided house. We find that it's very common in the shredded mulch, but not so much in the solid when it's a fully chipped mulch or the bark mulch. So just stay away from the shredded type and you should be good on that. Joyce in Missouri is on the line with a floor finishing question. How can we help you? I do have a question about my hardwood. Um, it's the old solid hardwood from this put down back in the 50s. I love it, and I refinished it oh, probably about 15 to 17 years ago. And with the time and traffic, the top is wearing now, and I need to sand it down and resurface it. And when I did it then, I used gem steel. But I want to know what would be the best products that would be long-term lasting and something that would be user-friendly for an individual. Okay, so first of all, in terms of the sanding it down part, does the floor have any really severe wear, or is it just the finish that's worn? Just the finish. So you don't have to sand it down all the way. What you can do is uh, you can basically just uh, lightly sand the surface. Uh, there is a machine called a U-sand machine, which is like a, an abrasive disc sander that you can rent at a home center or a hardware store. It has like four abrasive discs in it. It does have like a vacuum system built in, so it doesn't leave dust all over the place, but it won't wear down the wood too much. It'll just sort of take that top layer of finish off and get it ready to be refinished. Because with hardwood floors, you don't want to sand them completely down if you don't have to, because that takes many years off their life when you take all that finish off down the raw wood. It's really not necessary. And then after you sand it, then you can apply an oil-based polyurethane. So not not uh, water-based, but oil-based. Not acrylic-based, but oil-based. And you're going to apply that with what's called a lamb's wool applicator. It's kind of like a mop. And you dip it into a paint tray. You apply it in a very smooth, even coats. Start on one end, work your way out the door, and then leave for a good four or five, six hours, depending on the weather. Okay, with the windows open. Yeah, yeah. If it's a nice dry day and the windows are open, that's that's the best thing. But just remember, whatever it says for drying time on the can, at least double it because it tends to be a bit sticky for a while. Okay, so an oil-based polyurethane and a lamb's wool applicator. Yep, and then with a light sanding before you start the whole thing, okay? Sounds wonderful. Thank you so very much, and y'all have a wonderful day. Thanks, Joyce. Good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at one eight eight eight. 
money pit. You know, we get more questions on floors than any other topic on this program. Well, and they, you know, occupy a large portion of your home. They and do. there's always something to do with and them. And they take a lot of abuse. So that's probably they- why people need to fix them all <laughs> <Yeah>. the time. <laughs> Tom W. is writing into the money pit this week, and he says, My living room has knotty pine boards with a brick fireplace at one side. Over the years, the knotty pine has dried and shrunken and caused gaps from an eighth of an inch to a half inch that exposes the inside studs and insulation. What can I do to aesthetically fill in these gaps? Uh, I don't know. Less the knotty pine is uh, kind of come and gone, hasn't it, in terms of an aesthetic? Yeah, for sure. Plus, it sounds like it was really poorly installed because it never should have been put right over the studs like that. It should always have been put over drywall um, because you have basically no fire protection between it and the inside. I can't give you a lot of great ideas on how to fill those gaps because you have nothing behind it. If you did have something behind it, like sometimes we hear about floorboards that have gaps like that, we usually recommend using jute rope. That's like natural sort of fibrous rope, J-U-T-E, jute, mm-hmm. and pressing it in between the gaps. And then you can urethane over it and it seals in place quite nicely. But because you have nothing holding that from behind, that is rather impossible to do. So my advice would be to take off that knotty pine paneling, restore the drywall, and start again. All right. Probably not the answer you were looking for, Tom, but definitely bright side, fresh start. Well, bringing out your outside furniture is a great way to mark the start of warmer weather, but that furniture usually comes with some gross stuff on it, depending on how you store it for the season. Leslie's got some tips, though, on getting those tables and chairs back in shape in today's edition of Leslie's Last Word. Leslie? Yeah, you know, even if you've had that furniture stored in your shed or your basement all winter long, that outdoor furniture really could use a good cleaning. So for plastic furniture, you want to mix a little dish soap, some borax, and a half a cup of peroxide into one gallon of water. Then you need to let it sit for 10 to 15 minutes. Use a nylon brush to scrub onto the plastic pieces and then rinse it well when you're done. So that's super easy to do. If you've got metal furniture, you want to use soapy water and our favorite, most favorite and available cleaning agent, Elbow grease. I mean, you just got to do some work here for yourself. If you do find that rust has formed, go ahead, get rid of it with some sandpaper, then repaint the entire piece with a rust-prohibiting paint or metal varnish. Now, for wood furniture, you want to restore that moisture. So you've got to oil the surfaces with a sealant or a preservative that's appropriate to the type of wood. You can clean that furniture a couple of times a month with an oil soap as well. Now, once everything's dry, you can go ahead and add those cushions, but your cushions, they could probably use a pick-me-up as well. So go ahead and mix one teaspoon each of a dishwashing detergent and borax into a quart of warm water. Then use a spray bottle to douse those cushions generously. And once it sits for about 15 minutes, you want to hit it with a hose to rinse. Then stand the cushions on their side. This is definitely a trick that helps them dry out so much more quickly. Stand that cushion on the side. Everything's going to drain to the bottom. You'll even notice sometimes a cushion has like actually like a little metal drain built into the fabric cover. And make sure you're putting it that side down so that they'll just drain and they'll dry much more quickly. And then you can relax. In those chairs, right? (laughs) Exactly. And then park it right after your hard work. Park it, exactly, because that means spring is officially here. This is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. Hey, coming up next time on the program, did you know there's a missing element in most kitchens? It's not a $7,500 range or a four-acre refrigerator. It's simply good lighting. A well-lit kitchen begins with good lighting, and especially under-cabinet task lighting. 
We're going to teach you how to add those lights. It's easier than ever to do on the next edition of The Money Pit. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Remember, you can do it yourself. But you don't have to do it alone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.